All right, well, hi, everybody. Welcome to The Wing. We're super excited to be here with you today. Uh, my name is Katherine Tappan. I'm a broadcaster for NBC Sports. I cover Notre Dame football, a little NFL, the NHL and NBC, and of course, one year out from Tokyo 2020, we'll be broadcasting the Olympics as well. That will be my fourth Olympic game. So I'm really excited. I also host the On Her Turf podcast, and I know a lot of you in here listen to that. So thank you for that. We are actually gonna be broadcasting this, um, this whole panel discussion on the On Her Turf podcast as well. So. Uh, thank you all for coming out. I want to introduce our panel members as well. Uh, first off, to my left here, we've got three wonderful athletes. Ibtihaj Muhammad, the first Muslim American to compete in the Olympics with a hijab, and a bronze medalist in fencing. Uh, one of my idols growing up, Jackie Joyner-Kersey. Really excited to have her here. Three-time Olympic gold medalist in track and field, named Sports, Illustrated, Sports Illustrated's greatest female athlete of the 20th century. No big deal. <laughs> and Alex Johnson on the left here. Alex is a two-time World Cup gold medalist in sport climbing and a five-time US national champion. So, awesome. As I mentioned, next year at this time, we will be in Tokyo at the Summer Olympic Games where female athletes are going to be on prominent display. And so many of the amazing storylines going into Tokyo are for women athletes. Uh, not only how they dominate the headlines on the field, but what they're doing off the field. And uh, you know, we saw it recently with the Women's World Cup team for soccer, trailblazing their way to equal pay and trying to really make things equal for all women and all athletes. So um, you know, that's certainly one of the topics we're gonna discuss up here. And we're gonna have a great conversation and open it up to you guys as well at the end to get your questions and, and have the women on the panel answer. So uh, first off, you know, guys, let's just talk about Tokyo 2020. And you know, Ibtaj, you and, and Jackie have, have been a part of Olympics, so you know what one year out means to these athletes and the nerves and the anticipation. So let's start with some of your memories from those days with you. Wait, wait what's so funny? Are you making you, I feel like even saying the word Olympics still makes me nervous. So, um, I mean, I, I uh, competed in the last uh, summer games in 2016 and my uh, motto just going into the games was to not think about it at all. Because to me, the Olympics was something that was so like insane, like such a big dream that if I even said it out loud, it would like almost disappear. So in my family, you couldn't talk about it. Like we, you, no, you laugh. But if I like, if somebody said the word Olympics, like I would cut like them with my eyes. So we never talked about it until one day I qualified and then we could talk about it. Um, but it is, I mean, the greatest dream of any athlete to compete at the Olympics. I'm sure there are a lot of nerve, a lot of nervous energy, but a lot of hard work that these athletes are putting in time and energy to make that that dream a reality how about you jackie <laughs> yeah I was like is. <laughs> so long ago but anyway uh i think that it nervousness is what you're going to feel and it's being able to contain that and still focus on what you need to do and not rush it you know it's really being patient and, and sometimes you want it to happen like now but it's all a part of the preparation and your team and just making sure you're ready to go on the days that you have to compete. But, you know, you do, the anxiety is there and it's really how you manage that anxiety and uh, that nervous energy is not to use that, that laughter that sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, it's a part of the nervousness, but it's a way of controlling what's going on and knowing that 
I'd be ready, you know, when I get in them starting blocks. <laughs> <laughs> and Alex, sport climbing is something that's new next year to Tokyo. So this is something that you're now trying to achieve, getting to your very first Olympic Games. What's it like for you right now with the training process, with the anticipation and the anxiety that, they, that they've talked about? Uh, they definitely nailed the anxiety part. Um, <laughs> it's a year off, which is really close, but for us, um, we still haven't had any qualifying events. So we have three qualifying events in the next few months coming up. And so those are sort of at the forefront of climbers' brains who are trying to qualify in the Olympics. Even though it, a year is basically tomorrow, it's still sort of like a ways out for us. Um, but so we sort of never thought climbing would ever be in the Olympics, at least not in my lifetime of competing. Um, I think they started trying to get climbing into the Olympics in 2006 was the first time I heard about them pushing for it. And it takes so long to get a new sport added that I was like, well, I'll be 30. Like, <laughs> there's no way. And um, I actually retired from competing in 2015. And as soon as I heard that climbing was going to the Olympics, <laughs> came out of retirement. <laughs> so that was about a year ago. Um, I'm now on the US team with a bunch of teenagers. So we've been traveling the world together. <laughs> it's been really interesting. Um, but it's it's a huge deal to me, and it's sort of like that's the pinnacle of sport on earth, you know? So World Cups are cool, but the Olympics is still the Olympics. And I think, like, the gravity of how big that event is is, like, we're also trying not to think about it. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, we're excited. You, yeah, as you should be. And was it true that there was a Taylor Swift concert involved somewhere in the decision process to try to go to Tokyo 2020? There was. Um, I've been telling this story a lot in the past, like, three days at least. And I've, I've um, toned it down a little bit just because there's been a lot of media around. But, uh, yeah, I went to a Taylor Swift concert that I didn't want to be at. Um, it was a favor to a friend who wanted to go, and she didn't want to go alone. And so I went with her. And because I was not having a great time, drank a lot, because it was just a bunch of kids and their mom. <laughs> and I was like, cool, yep, I'm here. So <laughs> started drinking and then like had this kind of drunken epiphany watching her up on stage. And I know we were both born in 1989. Um, and was like, damn, she's like still doing it and like living it and her career is like only growing. Like, what am I doing? Sitting here not trying for anything. Like I would hate myself if I, didn't try, you know, um, and would have a bunch of regrets and Taylor's like upstairs, like sh or on the stage shaking it. So <laughs> she can like dance like that. I can come back out of retirement and like climb, you know? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, one of the interesting conversations that, um, you know, we've shared and, and what we, I've read over the last couple of days with, with everybody on this panel is that, um, you know, Ibtihaj and Alex and myself included, looked up to Jackie, right, growing up, uh, young athletes. We really idolized everything you were doing and accomplishing and, and blazing a trail for all of us. Um, but Jackie, when you have that weight of being such a tremendous role model and the responsibility that comes with that while you were competing, I mean, did you recognize at the time the impact that you were making for women going forward playing sports, all sports, not just track and field? No, and I'll, honestly, uh, no, I didn't, you know, at the time. Uh, all I ever ask of myself is to be true to who I am and that knowing that the position that I'm in that I take it very seriously and and for me it was always about being a positive uh, messenger you know uh, because regardless of 
what space I'm in, there's someone out there that's watching or listening. And if I could help and encourage them, you know, to be the very best, then I took being in that position um, very seriously because Wilma Rudolph was someone I admire. And, and then knowing a Billie Jean King and, you know, just how these women made it possible for me to be in a position to do the things that I was able to, that I was blessed to do and recognizing how important uh, Title IX was and how many people fought for us and for me to be able to get a scholarship and go to college and pursue my dreams. And so why not continue to be in the space and encourage and don't take it for granted? Yeah. And Sahaj, what was it when you were watching Jackie growing up and, and you know, participating in sports yourself and also dealing with, you know, difficulties such as being bullied as a kid? What was it about what Jackie was doing and what other women that you were watching was doing that enabled you to have that courage to do what you wanted to do? Well, um, I never imagined myself in professional sport. Um, I, I would say like a lot of Muslim kids, I thought I was going to be a doctor. Like that was my <laughs> and, um, uh, but what I thought was really cool about my parents um, was that they were teaching us things that our, our teachers weren't teaching us. Like uh, the United States really struggles teaching our actual history. So my mom as an educator made it a point to um, teach us about African-American history, about our own history. And so I have really early memories of reading um, uh, books about you, um, about uh, Jackie Robinson, um, Wilma Rudolph, you know, Althea Gibson, and um, I feel like having the opportunity to see um, particularly African Americans in sport make these waves uh, made it a lot easier for me to unconsciously graph my aspirations as an athlete. And though I didn't know I was going to be a professional athlete until much later in life, uh, I embarked on the journey of qualifying for my first U.S. team after I graduated from university. And um, I feel like without you paving that way, I wouldn't be where I am today. So I'm just so grateful. And she knows every time we're together, I'm like, <laughs> this is happening, right? Because I mean, I, I say it every single time, but you really just have um, allowed, like you and God, obviously, but you've made it possible um, for like so many of us to like see ourselves in this space. And as a black kid coming up in fencing, as a woman who wears hijab, just trying to like navigate like a Trump America, it's very difficult. And um, I honestly feel like I wouldn't be here without having you. So I appreciate you. <laughs> And Jackie, one of the things you've said over time is that, you know, don't apologize for your dreams. And women get into a habit of apologizing for a lot of things we do in life, right? Whether it's in our careers or with all the extracurricular activities we're doing with our children, with whatever it may be. It's an always, a, I'm sorry, but why is that such a big message for you and an important message to convey to all women in sports, out of sports, in the professional world? Don't apologize all the time. No, because we work hard. We earned it, and why apologize, you know? And uh, for me, it's always been about no one can outwork me. You know, you can say whatever you got to say. I know what I'm doing. I know what I have to do. And I know I'm not doing it alone, but I'm not going to apologize for my success, you know, and I will help you to understand it, but I'm not going to say, yeah, I did this, but no. I work hard every day. I did not train to come second. Yeah, yeah. you just didn't. You don't, you know. You want to be the best, and sometimes the numbers might not add up to you becoming the best, but at least you know you gave 100%. So don't second-guess yourself. Don't sit back and think, if I could have, should have, would have. So why, tip, mm -hmm. Taylor Swift's up there shaking. You said, wow, <laughs> let me get on up there, and now you back out here, and you're going to win that gold medal. <laughs> 
like shake it up the side of that mountain. <laughs> uh, that's funny. All right, so Alex, we know Taylor Swift, T-Swizzle, is one of the people you look up to in a way, right? <laughs> who, who, el who else were your role models growing up? It happened there. It happened there. The epiphany happened at T-Swizzle's show. Love it. I didn't know that was her nickname until right now. Really? No. <laughs> I'm pretty Is scary. that a thing? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Swizzle? <laughs> I'm like looking at my sister for validation here. I'm like, please tell me I didn't just make that up. <laughs> be a lot of head scratching. Yeah, I'm like, all right. <laughs> I've had this question a lot and I feel like I never have a great answer for it because there are so many mm -hmm. um, women, that, especially that came before me. Um, I've been saying Serena Williams a lot just because, well, oh, why not? Um, yeah, she's such a badass, and to sort of like come in and out of her sport and have a kid and come back, and her age, not nothing about her age, but for me in climbing, I am old in the sport, and so her being able to sort of come back as an older competitor and like kick ass has been really inspiring to me. Very cool. How about you? Um, women who inspire me? Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, Serena, I, like, live for her. Like, I remember seeing Serena and Venus, like, on the court with their beads, right? <laughs> My little sister had beads as a kid, so I really connected with Serena and Venus. Um, but, uh, no, I love them. I had the same experience with Serena. When I met, I met them in the Olympic Village. Oh, very um, cool. And I was, like, similar how you saw me do just with Jackie. I'm, like, telling them why I love them. <laughs> so it's, like, word vomit. But, um, no, Serena's actually a friend now, so it's really nice to just have her and be able to lean on her as a mentor. Um, <clears throat> and it's great to see her have this kind of, like... <laughs> I'm sorry, I missed you guys are, it. You guys are friends? Right? Oh. <laughs> right? I'll text her and I'll <clears throat> I'm like, not having it. Um, but it's nice to, like, um, to see her uh, in this moment, especially as a mom, right? We have, there's so many different uh, things that we're always combating as women from the time we're really young and even as adults, as professional athletes, as black athletes. Mm -hmm. um, there's so many different, I think, uh, things that society's projecting onto you and telling you what you can't do. And I think even her hashtag, this mama, is so cool. Because it's like she's really showing the world what we, as women, are always capable of doing. And I genuinely believe that we, as women, are unicorns. And I feel like Serena, like, embodies that. Yeah. yeah. She is the perfect unicorn, that's for sure. I mean, we talk so much about, on the On Her Turf podcast, also with everything we do uh, at NBC Sports, about the power of sports to giving young women confidence, right? And you guys all experienced that. I experienced that. A lot of people in this room did. But um, when you think back to moments in time, and I want to ask all three of you this question, when sport influenced you and when it changed the balance of a lack of confidence to having confidence then, do you remember when that occurred and, and how sports helped you get there? Yeah. Um, well, I think for me it happened in, in parts. I know that sport kind of... Um, it forced me uh, to accept myself a lot faster than I think a lot of uh, young girls are able to arrive at that point in their lives. I think that sport is so important for young girls to be a part of from a young age because it teaches you not only how to love yourself and your own capabilities and strengths, but also how to do that for your friends and your teammates and your competitors. Uh, but um, as a professional athlete who faced a lot of harassment as um, like in my later years of competing uh, and oftentimes from teammates, I uh, talk about this a lot in my memoir, Proud, but how I kind of arrived at a moment in my life where I decided that like I'm enough and I'm gonna choose my happiness over 
whatever kind of negativity that someone is throwing at me. And it really changed the trajectory of my career as an athlete because it allowed me to compete at my best um, when I just kind of decided to put myself first. And I think there's a lot of times in our lives where we're told that um, there's something taboo about, you know, loving yourself first or caring about your own, you know, um, emotional state and mental state and, and happiness. And I, I think that that's wrong. I think that you can best serve the people in your life, the loved ones in your life, when you put yourself first in, in that respect. Jackie, how about you with the influence of sports and as a young girl gaining confidence from that competing? Oh, excuse me. I would say probably, I mean, when I started running at the age of nine and I wasn't one of the best girls and I finished last in my first competition. And my goal was that if I could see myself improving a tenth of a second if I was running or a half of an inch if I was jumping, that meant the work that I was doing was paying off. And so me, it was my own personal goals and recognizing that when I would go to competition, fourth through eighth or ninth was always on the grass and one, two, and three was on the podium. And so I said, I gotta figure out how I'm gonna get some hardware. So then <laughs> I, so I started working my way to try to figure out how I can be in the top three and not knowing if I was gonna ever make an Olympic team that they would take the top three from your, your Olympic trials. So from there, it was always having positive people around me, but then also people being real with me and when I wasn't doing right, identify what I wasn't doing right in or what I was doing, but never to the point where I lacked uh, self-esteem or I was a very confident kid. You know, I grew up in a neighborhood that was very rough and you had to fend for yourself. You had to learn on the playground how to strategize. You know, my brother and I, you know, him and his friends would always tease me about going to practice every day lined us up, worked out, ran from the uh, stop sign to the mailbox. I outran my brother, and I told him, see, that's what practice would do for you. So, <laughs> so Love it. my confidence yeah. came from coming up and just, you know, being patient and taking it one day at a time. How about you, Alex? Oh, this is a great question. Um, climbing, I think, has always been something that has given me confidence and I think because it was kind of an obscure sport growing up, I sort of dove into it and that's where I made my identity. Um, because I was good at it from a young age, I gained a lot of confidence in it really quickly and sort of made friends that way because I was like kind of awkward and shy and weird in school and didn't really have a lot of friends. And then in middle school, I like, got bullied kind of hard and just was like silent for a couple of years. And so having climbing as that avenue, like it sort of really allowed me to be myself because I was confident in being good at it. And so it made me confident in who I was even if it was like masked by ability um it allowed me to sort of approach other kids and like make friends that way and sort of have that avenue of like a social life like my best friends were all climbers and pretty much for a few years my only friends were climbers and it was really hard for people in school to relate because it was such an obscure and random sport that they just I uh, was weird I was like the weird kid well, you both have kind of alluded to something like that along the way of, of your development in your childhood. And, you know, how do you, how do you overcome that when you're labeled as the weird kid or you're bullied or you're, you know, how do you get past those moments? Well, I wore hijab in Maplewood. I don't know if you guys know where Maplewood is. It's about a few miles from here. I was like a black kid in hijab in a very white town. So I was always weird in that town. <laughs> so um, being made to feel like a square all the time, I just kind of learned to embrace. I was like, whatever, you think I'm weird, I'll just be weird. So I, um, I 
I feel like that's when I kind of forced myself to develop that confidence because I, I was always very competitive. Like I love beating my brother as a kid. Um, but I coming from a large family, one of five, I wanted to be first, you know, I wanted to get the last slice of pizza. I wanted to be like first to the edge of the pool. I just always have this competitive energy. I always wanted really good grades and kids always thought that like I got bullied for, you know, wanting an A. I got bullied, you know, for wearing hijab. So I was just like, you know, whatever. I'm going to embrace this hijab and like these curves and whatever anyone wants to throw at me. And I feel like that kind of forced me into being confident. And I because I realized not everybody has uh, arrives at that point I don't think that they should have to I'm um I, I hate bullying like I really do because I, I realize how people made very strategic effort to tear me down as a kid um so uh yeah I I feel like this is a very triggering conversation mm-hmm. because I really hate bullying but it can be really tough um I think it's really important that people just learn to like love themselves early on and I feel like it's so important that we teach our girls that Bullying and image and all of that is amplified as well with social media now, right? I mean, everybody is comparing themselves to other people on different platforms. There's so many ways to see how someone can be great and how they can fail at something. But when you try to prioritize the importance of, you know, you have a presence on social media. A lot of people, obviously, all three of you guys uh, recognize you guys where you go. How do you teach somebody that all of that is not real, it's fine to embrace it, but at the same time, don't use that as your source of strength and your source of self-importance. I think it goes back to uh, embracing who you, who you are and not losing sight of who that person is on the inside and really trying to, especially when you're working with, you know, I work with a lot of young girls and trying to help them to understand uh, what a finish, we're not a product, but in the, when you see that magazine cover, you know, that is a finished product in a sense. But when you're out there working hard, your hair is out of place, you don't have lipstick on, you don't have makeup, you know, that's who you really are. And most of the world sees that but you can't compromise your own beliefs for someone else. So be true to who you are, be bold you know, in your action and the beauty should come from within. And then others will see when you be able to exude that through the words that you speak. And so teaching them that and understanding that, yes, social media is a part of where we are today, which didn't have a lot of when I was coming up, but uh, understanding that that's also your resume you know, and where you want to go in life, that will follow you. That one delete is not deleted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. <laughs> How about you, Alex? You made me think. This is interesting. Um, we have this in climbing a lot, and I'm sure this is kind of happens in every sport, where you get these, like, social media models or social media influencers, and they've never won an event, and they're sort of, they have a ton of followers, and it's just because they, like, posting climbing photos in really short shorts and a sports bra and it's they're like super famous and it's a really big deal that everyone's like oh my gosh I met so-and-so and and it sort of is like feels discrediting and disheartening to those of us who are out like sweating and winning um and that's something that (laughs) (laughs) these people are really nice but it um (laughs) I like sincerely really kind people but you're also kind of like come on and I don't feel like I would 
I would never want to just take my shirt off and pose for a photo for Instagram likes. Um, that's not something that I can really relate to. And so me neither. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. It's yeah. It's hard to like social media. It's like a love hate thing. Like it's, I guess we, it's a resume. Exactly. Like it's great for sponsors and showing like the badass stuff we do. And on the other hand, it's like, do we have like I have, I'll get more likes if I take my shirt off but it's like bleh. I was really excited when Instagram and like is testing the no likes thing I mean I was living for this moment and I was like what are people going to do for money now right no <laughs> likes how are they going to make money but also I mean I always think back like how hard is it right now to be a kid right to have to like your entire livelihood right like live on whether or not someone likes a photo of you. I can't even imagine that pressure. Well, it's certainly, yeah, it's a big problem for in that regard. Um, and something, you know, that I think children have to understand and those that follow all of you guys up here and watch what you do. I mean, that's why it's so important to convey that message and to convey, you know, Alex, that it's not about, you know, just posing a picture, making it look like you're doing something that's really not real. Um, and to understand you guys all communicated the same message here about how true, how you have to be true to yourself and how important that is. Um, you spoke about women's soccer earlier. This is why I'm living for Megan Rapinoe right now. I wish that everybody used their moment like the way that she is because like imagine if everybody on the soccer team did the exact same thing Megan's doing. That was like, actually, I'm not here for police brutality. I'm not here for mass incarceration. I'm not here for like caging kids at the border. Like if everyone did that as opposed to just being like, yeah, what Megan said. And it's like, no, use your platform, like use it in meaningful ways. And like, like for me, I have a very woke Instagram. Like I feel like I'm using every single moment to teach people something because I'm like, I don't even know how many followers I have. I don't care if I have one or like a million. I'm like, you're going to hear what I have to say today because this is a really crucial moment for us as Americans to use our time and energy towards good and being agents of change. And I feel so strongly about that. You talk about that, and that's one of the reasons we're here tonight, of course, to talk about the equality factor on and off the field. Uh, the women's national team has done a remarkable job. They're going to be going, you know, uh, next month for a, a big, a big change in women's equal pay compared to the men's soccer team. But in general, when you look at how many trailblazers are trying to make this change, what do you guys think it's going to take in order to make the shift between this disproportionate balance between men and women? Obviously not winning a World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, I, I think it's going to take um, a real robust action plan Mm -hmm. And just from the top to the bottom and the bottom to the top. What I mean by that is women being in more decision-making positions, uh, women being at the table, you know, and being heard, but then also how do you take what you have heard and put it into action to see change come about? Mm -hmm. Because it might not happen for... The generation today but what can we put in place to see you know those changes coming about from equal pay and, and I mean it's on all levels from corporate America and on mm -hmm. you know it's and then once one woman get in there that's not enough mm -hmm. you know uh, you need one that's in there that can bring another one along that can also team together and start to make these changes 
you know, and until we have the women in the boardroom that's making the decisions, then in my opinion, we're going to always be on the outside because you got to be at the table in order to be heard. And in order for change to come, and change is hard, but they got to see your face. You got to hear you. Got to know where you're coming from. Not just reading about it, but at the table when the decision time is to be made. If you're going to make that higher, then okay, let's look at what we have. Do we have diversity? What do that look like? You know, how are we going to make this change? And when they talk about women's sports and equal pay, what do that look like? Mm-hmm. I have a serious question for everybody. I want everyone to answer honestly. Raise your hand if you've been to a woman's sporting event this year. (laughs) So I would imagine that this room is filled with people who believe in equal pay, right? But I I think that in order for us to see that happen, like I'm going to disagree with you. The only time in life I swear we'll ever disagree. (laughs) I think that we can see it happen in our lifetime. And I think that it, it, like money speaks volumes, right? The The reason that like the people who are like anti-equal pay, they're like, oh, the, the dollars aren't there. But the dollars aren't there because we're not showing up for our women. You know, like if you go to a WNBA event in the same exact arena that the Lakers are playing in or that the Knicks are playing in, there there's like a percentage of people there, right? The Knicks are awful, but they sell out, right? right. And it's like, how do we put our, how do we put what we truly believe into action? We have to show up. When I was a kid, my parents took us to WNBA games all the time. I have a signed Rebecca Lobo jersey. I know nothing about basketball. I've never played before ever in life. Like, I mean, aside from like shooting in the backyard, I've never played, I'm not good. Um, But my mom really believed in us supporting women's sports. Not that she had girls who played basketball, but that she believed in supporting women. And I think that that's something that we should all make um, a pack today, right? We're making a woman's pack. That we go to a women's sporting event and then we bring a friend. Even if we support, because what I'm saying is that to see it change over... Yeah, we disagree. (laughs) To see it change over time, you know, is that in the generation that it won't be a dialogue or conversation. So what we plant today, hopefully will bear fruit tomorrow because now it is the norm, not the abnorm, that we always having a conversation about it. It's like this is where it should be. So that's what I'm saying as far as a generation, you know, because the younger generation got to come with us. We can do our part, but we got to pull everyone else along because a, a lot of... Young people on social media don't even know what they're fighting for. Yeah. You know, they just getting likes. So it's like, <laughs> how can we, in the position that we're in, to use our platform, but to also teach a generation, but then also to change a generation mindset and behavior who have come before us have been accustomed to saying it's okay. You know, because women are still not getting paid at the same level in corporate America doing the same job as men. So it is a fight that it's across the board. Because in order to see, yes, we have a platform with sports, but you also gotta have that same platform with corporate America because corporate America is the ones who give the sponsor dollars to the sports. Mm -hmm. And we gotta have the women in those decision-making positions and we agree and you know, we gonna get it together. Well said, (laughs) well said. (laughs) I love it, a little camaraderie too. Jackie, well said, that's incredible. 
All right, let's shift to some fun stuff here. Because one thing we do talk about a lot um, is balance, right? How do you balance life and career and kids? And that permeates throughout this entire room, no matter what anybody's profession is. Um, how do you do it in your life? Let's start and go down the line here. You know, what, what things enable you to kind of bring your mind to a good place when you've had a tough, stressful day? Um, is it reading a book? Is it listening to music? I'm just curious. Want me to go first? Sure. I don't she apparently is going to disagree because she's already laughing. Right? <laughs> I agree with both of you. Right? I feel the energy, man. I know it's like, between you guys. I was like, did I bring my track cleats? Are we going for a run? Um, I uh, I don't have children, so uh, I don't I can't speak to to your question about kids. But um, to I think one thing that sport has taught me is to respect uh, taking a break. And um, that's something that most of us don't don't do enough. And um, as hard as I train in, in qualifying for national teams and world teams and Olympics or whatever, um, I re responded to my body's level of fatigue and would often like say, you know what, actually, it's okay not to practice. And um, when you're trying to make something like an Olympic team and you want it more like most times you want it more than you can breathe, right? So like in the middle of the night, I would wake up and be like, oh my God, this girl who's number one in the world, she's from Ukraine. I know she already went running today. I'm going to go and go running. <laughs> like that's what, like Olympians, there's a fine line between like Olympian and crazy. I don't know <laughs> where we fall, right? I'm sure we're, we're crazy. They know now. Um, but um, that's what kind of like energy you're fighting all the time. And you have to like really learn to respect um, taking a break and um or like be responsive to that to that to that feeling that your body gives you and even now like even though i'm not competing anymore um i take breaks i'm like actually nope i'm not doing that i say no to stuff which is very empowering um i decided that i'm going to be home for a month um starting in august which I have not been home in three weeks. So this is very exciting for me. And uh, again, I don't know, as you get older, you just kind of decide like you're going to take your life back and be like, I'm going to say no. Right. And I feel like, I don't know, that's where I am in my life. I like saying no. No, I think that's the, the key is uh, learning to say no. Mm -hmm. And and again, not apologizing for it and thinking that you've done something wrong or someone is not going to like you or but and embracing you because all of us take care of someone but in order for us to take care of them and be in our be best healthy minds body soul and spirit is that we have to take care of ourselves mm -hmm. and sometimes we put ourselves on the shelf and do all this for everyone else but won't take we won't take care of us and so saying no and and it's hard sometimes and I know even for myself it's like you know you asked me about a vacation I'm like I ain't no vacation. <laughs> I just but, came back, but I'm on my, that's where I am right now in my life. I'm like, I'm take another vacation. Yes. But I, I, I think it's so important that we find time for ourselves and, and not feel bad about it. Mm -hmm. Great advice. How about you, Alex? I agree with both of them. <laughs> um, balance, I think, in climbing and training is something that I'm, I've done a lot in life, even if it was unintentional. Um, I've had kind of a tumultuous, like, in and out relationship with climbing. And take a year off at this point and, like, a month off at this point and three, month, three months off at that point. And so for me, it was, like, exactly like Iftihash said, like, if I don't want to do it, I don't. And that's something that I think has helped me have longevity in this sport is stepping away from it when I need to step away from it and having sort of that 
passion reignited when I do feel like returning to it. Like I do other stuff. Like I just mountain biked for a year, two years ago, and I didn't climb at all and like got super into mountain biking and spent all this money because it's so expensive. And then was like, (laughs) all right, I'm done with that. And I went like back into climbing and I haven't biked since, but it was an awesome break, like mentally and totally different body mechanics. And so it was really nice to sort of weave in and out of climbing in my life like that. Well, before we open it up to the questions to the audience, I want to get just down the line here. Uh, what's next for each one of you guys? So, Alex, I'm going to start with you because I know your goal is Tokyo 2020. We're one year out. You've got a big competition coming up in August. So um, tell us what's next. Um, next is World Championships. They are in August. I leave in nine days. And they're in Tokyo. So it's Tokyo 2019. Nice. <laughs> Good luck. Oh, thank yeah. you. Good and luck. they are. it's the first Olympic qualifying event. So... We're all kind of planning on peaking at the second one <laughs> because it's basically tomorrow. Um, and so we'll do that in August. And then in November is the second qualifying event, and that's in France. And then we have the Pan American Championships in January, which is the third way to qualify. And so those are the th- sort of the three things that are next on the horizon. And then if something goes well at one of those, then Tokyo 2020. All right. Well, we'll be cheering you on for sure. Jackie, I know your summer's been a celebration of your St. Louis Blues winning the Stanley Cup, so we know that that happened in the past, and you're going to look forward to opening night with those guys. Uh, But also, 1988, you launched the Jackie Joyner Kersey Foundation. I know you're heavily involved in the community in St. Louis. Um, How's that going? It's going extremely well, and uh, so for me, it's continuing my work in the the community and in my foundation, and uh, coming to the end of the summer, uh, last week we had our big field day. It was 110 degrees out there, and we <laughs> 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 were like, okay, we got to cut it short. Let's go inside, you know. <laughs> you know they want to run some more. They want to jump, they, you know. But uh, continue to do work uh, in the community and doing my um, winning in life uh, curriculum that's based around character and leadership, you know, with young people. So it keeps me busy while I try to take that break. (laughs) Say no to a few things, but no. (laughs) Love it. And Ibtaj? Um, I have uh, my third book coming out uh, this fall. September 10th is a public date for The Proudest Blue, A Story of Hijab and Family. It's a children's book. It's really beautiful. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited. one, I think the book tours are going to be a lot of fun because they'll be a, involve a bunch of little like nuggets I can like kiss <laughs> and, and cuddle with little kids that are mine. Um, <laughs> and uh, being that I won't be competing in Tokyo, um, I hope to be on the other side of a competition commentating. So like, here's hoping. All right, yeah. all right, we'll we'll push for that. <laughs> all right. Well, we have, yes, the hands are already, you're getting the mic first, because your hand went right up. (laughs) So if you could just state your name and and who your question is intended for. It's for everybody. Um, Hi, my name is Michelle. I really appreciate this conversation and you guys taking the time to do this. I actually wish there were guys in the room too, Mm. because I know a lot of my guy friends are very jealous right now. But one, I think we kind of scratched the surface in talking about the self-care part, but I think sometimes um, people have a difficult time talking about like doubting yourself when you are in the middle of that climb and or when you're just trying to achieve. So what do you guys do when you get into that space where you're like, uh, I don't think, I don't know, I don't know what to do or maybe like I'm ready to give up. Like what do you do to kind of ground yourself again and like re-energize and get back to it? 
You won all the races, so I <laughs> <laughs> you do tell us. <laughs> no, I think you know a lot of times uh, people, you know, you see the wins, but for me it was not winning in '84, my first Olympic Games, and I, you know, I won a silver medal, which you know is is, is good, but. <laughs> <laughs> But <laughs> when you have the ability, you know, to win the gold because you wouldn't get out of your own way because I wasn't mentally tough and I was dealing with an injury and I let the injury get the best of me and my team, even though my coaches and the physical therapy, everyone said that I was ready and I, but I didn't believe I was ready and that I had to learn that it takes more than just the physical, that I have to be mentally tough and I left Los Angeles games with an understanding that I have this ability I can be an Olympic champion but I need to be the toughest athlete out there mentally because physically I can do it but I just let this little bitty soreness of a hamstring injury injury get in the way and you say think positive and it's easy to say and it's difficult to do because you lose sight of your goals, you lose, you just lose focus instead of reversing that and saying that I can do this. I'm going to execute. Instead, my leg heavily bandaged. I'm looking for a pain that wasn't there, but it was always in my mind and I paid the price. You guys want to chime in on that too? Um, this is actually something I struggle with a lot is mental toughness. I would say it's probably my biggest weakness is like not crumbling under the pressure sometimes. And especially in climbing, I think this happens to a lot of athletes in climbing is because you, you can, it's an individual sport. There's no opponent, but like there kind of are 50 opponents. And so it's mostly you competing against what's in front of you, like the actual climb, but you get a sense of how others have done on it. And so if someone did it, the person who climbed before you five minutes, like, you know, they did it. You can sit there and be like, I have to do it. I have to do it. I have to do it. And that, that pressure kind of really gets to a lot of people and helps literally nothing. Like how that person did on it has nothing to do with how I'm going to do on it. They're going to do whatever they want on it or whatever they can on it. And it, that doesn't affect me because we're not going like head to head. There's no physical contact. There's no combat. It's, it's really hard to sort of push that aside and be like, how they did on it is whatever. Like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do regardless of them. And that's something that this year especially I've been really trying to work on because it has, like, my brain has held me back so much in the past. And just letting that, like, oh, my God, I have to do it first try sort of because they did or, I'll, or I won't win. And then you're like, oh, and you slip off the you slip off the first move and you land on the ground. And you're like, well, I blew it. And then it's like, boom total like you can see it in their body language like you know when someone's crumbling you can literally see it the moment it happens and that's something that I've been working on a lot and it's like a day in and day out thing every day I go to the gym I'm like oh I don't have it today and then some days I'm like yeah I, I'm gonna win and then the next day I'm like no I don't have it today and it's <laughs> it's like constant I am um, uh talk about I experienced depression as a member of Team USA for two years and right before Olympic qualification started uh in um I don't know April of 2015 I was like you know what like I am going to like just I decided to like kind of flip my mentality on its head and really just learn to like love myself and appreciate myself and choose happiness and I know that that sounds like really 
simplistic and such a complicated topic when talking about um, like mental health, but uh, working with a sports psychologist and really just trying to change my mindset really helped me. And um, I just stopped doubting myself. I literally would wake up every day and choose happiness. I was like, you know what? Your eyeliner, amazing. I was just like, your lunge stronger than whoever that girl is on the other side of the strip. I was like, you are faster than this girl. It didn't matter if I was facing like world number one. I was, I had this kind of like mentality that I could take on and tackle anything that was in front of me. And I swear, I try to carry that energy even today. Like as like someone who's not no, like no longer competing recently, I'm just like, whatever, I got it. And I try to feed myself that energy all the time. I don't allow anyone to take me out of my happiness either. Like someone who's being very discriminatory. Like I was followed at a Carter's the other day. The lady like accused me and my sister of like shoplifting. Clearly not shoplifting. I don't have children. What am I going to take, right? <laughs> um, but I was just like, I'm not going to allow you to take my happiness today. I don't have time. I don't have time. And I feel like if you try to feed yourself positive stuff, if you try to tell yourself you can tackle anything, if you don't really believe it, I think just telling yourself that you can, it's like half the battle. Great question. Thank you. You've got... Yeah. Uh, where's the microphone? Hi. First, Jackie, I want to say that I grew up watching you. You are one of my biggest idols, so I'm so happy that you're here. My first question has, my question has to go to both of you guys about reshaping the narrative of women of color in sports. And I remember when you and Flojo were around, it was about you guys being overly feminine with the nails and the blowouts and everything else like that. And now with Caster Simone and even Serena every now and then, she's not feminine enough. So what do you guys as women of color in the sport kind of do to reshape your narrative and, and kind of control that narrative when you're constantly being attacked all the time? Fencing's weird, like, because <laughs> it's so weird for like a multitude of reasons. One, like, there's a, there's only male referees, right? And when you see how Serena was treated, right? You know that match that I'm talking about, and it was really hard for us, particularly mm -hmm. as women, to watch. In fencing, you see it a lot, where someone's like, you know, trying to talk down to you, try to assert their masculinity over you. And unfortunately, the, f the female, like, competitors, I feel like they buckle under that pressure because they don't want... Um, the referees to use it against them, to, to award touches against them, because this is how catty the men can be, right? They're like, did she just roll her eyes at me? It's like, I'm going to give the point to this French girl just because you rolled your eyes mm -hmm. or because I don't like your attitude today. Some of the athletes like wear suit really tight clothes to try to appeal to the referees. It's like very bizarre. Um, I feel like as the first woman of color on the U.S. women's Zebra team, um, the only athlete who's ever in hijab, one of the only athletes of color at World Cups, I feel like I'm always just kind of doing my own thing anyway, and I don't know what life feels like without having that that pressure, having to carry that that baggage and that weight of being a black athlete in, in the sport of fencing. I don't know what it feels like to not have that, um, but to speak to the femininity, I feel like, I don't know, it's, it's a bit different in the sport of fencing where I feel like people are trying to use their sexuality to appeal to male referees. It's very bizarre. Maybe that's why NBC isn't playing it all the time. <laughs> I don't know, it's like odd to watch, to be honest. No comment, I don't, yeah. No. <laughs> I have no idea. I feel like I'm trying to keep my job, I don't know. <laughs> I know you want the job for the Olympics. Don't worry, we'll get you somehow, no, right? No, it's like, it's, <laughs> you it's can't have mine. Of, it's, it's, uh, it's bizarre to watch because I think as, as, um, as spectators, we don't, we see that, that lens of um, people, especially as black athletes, like us, uh, kind of labeling us as being masculine in a way. And that was something that I would hear from coaches, from even teammates um, of like, oh, she only has 
her strength. It's like, you know, I'm not capable of thinking tactically because I'm a black athlete. No one's ever said that, but that's exactly what they mean, which is like, oh, just use your legs, use your legs, use your power, use your strength. And it's like, what? I know I'm stronger than these other girls because I've like busted my ass to be stronger, but it's not, I have, I can bring more to the table, but there's like almost a lack of respect for me because I was a woman of color in the sport of fencing. And I would add that I think it was um, extremely tough because Florence and I was always uh, pitted against each other because I was the darker person and I wasn't uh, attractive. But as we talked about earlier, that's why I didn't lack self-esteem because I knew who I am and I know the difference between the distraction to stop me from focusing on what I needed to do. So I didn't get caught up in, if you don't think I am a perfect fit for your product or a perfect fit to be on the cover of your magazine, I'm okay with that because I'm going to continue to work hard because I never wanted people to talk about uh, what I was wearing but about my performance. I always wanted people to appreciate the great talent that women brought to the field and off the field. So for me during our time of competing, we were family, but we also knew that in some settings that it would always be not so much about our performance, but it was about, well, as a family, I don't get along. Like, where's that coming from? Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it was just unfortunate. And, it was, and I was so glad to see uh, Serena and Venus when they came along that you showed the sisterhood and people embraced that instead of, dividing it and saying that it's only enough for you when it's enough for all of us and all of us are enough Mm -hmm. and all of us are beauty have beauty in our own way greatest female athlete of the 20th century and still rocking the greatest nails in the business right all right yes in the back right there yep hi my name is sabrina and my question is for ibtahaj so um Everything about you from your identity as a woman of color um, to your talent to the way you use your platform in particular to call out police brutality and other serious issues, all of these things to me seem like they would make you sort of a prime target for, um, for the right wing and for Donald Trump. So I guess my question is, I mean, I hope it doesn't happen, but if you ever were faced with the situation of Donald Trump deciding you're the next Ilhan Omar or, you know, AOC or Megan Rapinoe or whatever, like, how do, you, how do you deal with that? Or are you prepared for that sort of, the trolling that would come with that? Oh, well, I was in the last Olympics, so the trolling was there. Like, <laughs> it's really scary. And it's to me, it's not very funny because, like, to have a relationship with the FBI, right, to have like very severe death threats come to my parents' home, to come to emails, like myself, USA Fencing, is really scary. And that's like the harsh reality of being a Muslim athlete for me in, in this moment. It's so difficult. And, like, um, when like, you know, Trump says these things that are very, to me, intentional and divisive. And it's almost like he's like hopeful that someone actually attacks Ilhan. It's it's so scary and so real and not just for her, but for anyone who wears hijab, for any Sikh person who may cover their hair, because like the the crazy, you know, um, 
people who are actually acting out are actually not that intelligent and they don't know the difference between what Sikh men wear and what Muslim women wear, like the hijab, they don't know. So they're just out here like, we had an attack on a Sikh temple a few years ago. Like, I mean, I don't really think that they're, um, that they really care who's on the opposing end of their words or like God forbid the actual violence that they inflict. And it's really scary moment. And it, I don't, I don't think that you have to have like that exact celebrity or beyond this, you know, national stage to face the exact same threat. I could walk down the street in New York City and face that exact same fear that maybe, you know, Ilhan may face as, you know, a member of Congress. It's scary. Thank you for that. Uh, we have another question. Yeah. Hi, I'm Layla. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here today. This is amazing. Uh, my question is for Tahaj. Um, so you're religion is more identified you know you wear the hijab and i grew up in a muslim home and i had a very different experience it sounds like your mom was a little bit more supportive about sports um, but growing up muslim girls are not supposed to be out playing and it's been a very difficult sort of conversation to have with my cousins and my sisters and how do you talk about women you can still be muslim you can still play sports and how do you change that idea and perspective and it's it's something that I really want to change, um, but it's not enough. I know when I learned about you, I almost lost my mind, and I watched <laughs> every video I could of you and uh, wanted to know who you are. And when I got to hear your voice, and it was like, wait, is she from like my neighborhood? Yeah. <laughs> it was right, really no cool. accent from Jersey. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm from Brooklyn. So I know. It was really nice. I know. A huge uh, contradiction. But um, so. I mean, when you think about that kind of cultural barrier that exists, I think that that um, is why we have such uh, such a huge drop off, especially when it comes to girls being involved in sport. I'm African-American. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but African-Americans make up 30 percent of the Muslim population here in the United States. And um, like sport is like in my blood like in our family we didn't have a choice and whether or not to play sport it was more so like which sport do you want to play and you had to go outside and play like you didn't have a choice it's like no get out the house come back when the street lights come on like that's what kind of household <laughs> i grew up in and um so it's really like especially as a public figure within the muslim community it's a tough conversation to maybe households who aren't like mine, you know, families that aren't like mine, who there is that kind of cultural barrier that exists where girls involved in sport is just not the norm. And to be completely honest, boys in sport is not the norm. People think that if they play basketball on Saturdays that that's them being active. And I'm like, mm, no, actually that's not, that's not what that is. Like you actually need to go out, put your kid in a sport. And um, it's, I, I work very closely with a Gulf Nation actually right now to help them build out sports programming. And it's something that you see within the region, um, like countries like Oman or Saudi, Qatar, UAE, them actually making conscious decision to try to build out sports programming for their kids. So it's not just a, a, a male versus female thing. It's changing a mindset, trying to literally change the fabric of a nation to understand that your health is your wealth, you know, and, and trying to like the fact that some of these schools don't have sports at all is crazy yeah. in, in 2019. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. In the back with that. Oh, yeah. You're looking around. <laughs> we'll get you a microphone. Hold on one second. Thank you all for being here. It's been really cool. Um, I was wondering, kind of a sillier question, but do you have race day or competition day superstitions or routines, and what are they? I always Go put ahead. my left shoe on before my right shoe. <laughs>
I don't know why. <laughs> I wake up, I have, we have like five prayers a day and one is very early, like before the sun comes up. If I don't pray, my whole day is not right. Like normally in life, it's like, mm, I'll just pray when I wake up. But like on game day, you better believe my alarm is set to like pray <laughs> on time. Did you have any Jackie? No. No? None? <laughs> she doesn't need him. No. <laughs> he just gets and to the what, starting line and goes right. and wins. He's like, But what I just learned from that is we none of us need them. That's a secret. No more superstitions. Yes. yes. <laughs> right shoe first, here I come. Yeah. Right behind you. That was, that was karma because I got left hanging with a high five on the Today Show yesterday. Who saw that? Oh, man. Like, full on live TV. I was like, yeah. And then I just go, oh, air high five. You better high five yourself next time. Panicked. <laughs> yeah, nice. Okay. <laughs> yes, hi. Uh, my name is Carolina. I'm, I work in advertising, and I'm also from Brazil. And on the last, uh, on this World Cup, one of the Brazilian soccer, football, one of the Brazilian athletes, um, she declined sponsorship because the amount was not, not only not equal to what the guys were getting, uh, but it was way below what she thought she deserved. Uh, my question is, how do you see that industry? I know you touched a little bit on sexuality, uh, but how do you see that? I know there's a lot of people here who also work with advertising. How can we help? Um, just wanted to get your perspective. I love that. How can we help? That's a great question. Hire more people of color. That's my answer to everything. <laughs> I was at Ad Week in Cannes last year, and I was literally in a room, no offense to anyone here white, but it was a room full of white people, and they were like, what can we do to make our ads more appealing and diverse? And I was like, well... <laughs> it's like, it's, right? It's like starts in the boardroom. We need more diversity. I was like, this to me seems like something you guys could have done back in the States, but okay, we can talk about, we can talk about it in France. <laughs> That's awesome. So Jackie's not going to answer. No? <laughs> okay, fine. I don't know. <laughs> no, what you just said is okay, it's powerful. Sorry. You know, and I, and I find a way to raise the money. <laughs> raise it up. So no one is turning down any type of sponsorship, you know, that uh, is a way to open the door and then maybe some way to have a dialogue and... I just think dialogue is so important, but then also turning that into action and that you can really see, you know, to it, six figures to a seven figure, you know, deal, you know. Like I know that all of my endorsement deals that I had during the games um, or even now have all been to me like meaningful partnerships, like working with Nike um, has, I mean, I feel like it's a dream of any athlete, but Nike is like the woke company of the moment. Right. And like, it's, it's easy to stay silent. There are a lot of companies that choose silence. And, and I think that, that Nike just kind of taking the stance on, you know, social issues is really big. It's a big moment. And to me, it's not always about money. It's about aligning as an athlete. Anyway, for me, it's about aligning myself with companies that of course are going to show up and pay you, but also, um, help me advocate for the things that are important to me. Uh, I would agree with that completely. Um, I just signed with a company who, before I even 
signed a contract. Like I sat down with them and they, I've known them for a while. It was the guy that I was friends with who became the athlete manager at this company. And, and he sat down and was like, I don't care if you don't make it. And I, I don't care if you ever climb again. Like it's who you are as a person that, that we care about. And that really resonated with me because a few years ago I was like, stepped back from climbing and was kind of trying to figure out who I was and who I wanted to date. Hey, Ray. Um, and sort of lost a sponsor through that. And then this company came and they were like, we're going to support a ton of LGBTQ events and we want to show up and like be present and not just like throw a check at these events or at me, but like promote who I am and who I am as a person. And they like love Brie and they support both of us. And, and they show up to these events and like, hang out with people like on the on the ground you know like they're meeting grassroots athletes they're showing up and like supporting us as people not just like the sport and the, it's pretty cool for the community so very cool it was mountain hardware <laughs> <laughs>